You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. My guest today is evolutionary psychologist David Buss. He is the author of um, a number of books um, on human mating behaviors, including The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating. He's also the author of Evolutionary Psychology, The New Science of the Mind. And uh, he's, his most recent book, which I would like to talk to him about, is called When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment and Assault. Welcome, David. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here chatting with you. Uh, maybe you could begin by just uh, reading a, a, a sh- very short passage from your from your book. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, um, uh, so it starts as just a paragraph uh, at the end of the book. It says, "Men's sexual violence toward women remains the most widespread human rights problem in the world." Deep knowledge of men's and women's sexual psychology will help create conditions to reduce sexual violence. Information about the evolutionary history of sexual conflict will help. Knowledge that women are not passive pawns in a male game will help. Progress rests with the recognition of a fundamental change in sexual morality, that women themselves, not boyfriends, husbands, or, or fathers should have sole autonomy over their own bodies. Female choice about when, where, with whom, and under which circumstances they consent to sex is the deepest and most fundamental component of women's sexual psychology. It is a fundamental human right. Although men have co-evolved strategies to undermine it, that freedom of choice should never be compromised. A deep understanding of the coevolution of sexual conflict in humans will not magically solve all problems, but I am convinced it is the light and the way. Thank you so much, David. Um, let's begin there, perhaps, with this uh, deep understanding of the sexual conflicts between men and women. Can you tell me something about um, what evolutionary psychology? can teach us about um, the kinds of conflicts of interest that arise between men and women in sexual situations? Sure. Yes. Well, it it basically starts, I mean, if if you want to start from uh, ground zero, from basics, it it starts with the evolution of sexual reproduction itself. Uh, So as we evolve from asexual organisms, uh, and evolved a system of m- breeding uh, of reproduction called sexual reproduction that evolved somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion years ago. Now, once you have sexual reproduction, you have uh, two sexes, uh, and biologists define sex by the size of the, the gametes, the size of the sex cells, where males are defined as the one with the smaller 
sex cells. In the human case, sperm, uh, you know, with basically a small packet of DNA and, and an outboard motor designed for swimming speed. Uh, and women or females the, being defined as the ones with the larger gametes or larger in the human case eggs, which are uh, not only many times larger than the sperm, but also very rich in nutrients. And so from the moment of conception, you have sex differences that in, in amount of investment. And then in the human case, uh, it continues with what we call obligatory parental investment. That is, what is the minimum amount of time it takes a, a woman versus a man to produce one child? And in the, in the woman's case, it's, it's that nine months of pregnancy, which is very uh, energetically expensive. It uh, causes all kinds of changes in the woman's body, including uh, a forward movement of center of gravity, which puts extra torque on her back. Uh, she is eating for two rather than one. Uh, et cetera. And, and men, in order to produce that same, same child, the minimum is, is one act of sex. And so from, and, and so the, the bottom line is that men and women have evolved fundamentally different reproductive anatomy, uh, anatomies and physiologies. And uh, from an evolutionary point of view, this results in what I call zones of conflict between the sexes where the best uh, or optimal mating strategy from a man's perspective uh, differs from what's in the best interest of um, the woman's perspective, just from a, from a reproductive standpoint. So, for example, um, it is, tends to be in the woman's best interest to take, to take time and energy to assess the quality of the mate or potential mate that she is considering having sex with. And that, and that takes some time. It can't be assessed at a glance. Uh, and, uh, and, and part of the reason for this is that the, the costs of making a bad sexual decision uh, are much higher for women than for men. They risk being impregnated by a man that she has, um, who, who might have suboptimal genetic material, for example, genes for bad health or a high mutation load or a family history of uh, mental disorders. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and on the flip side, uh, or a man who is not going to invest in her and, and the children that result from that. On the flip side, the benefits of carefully choosing a mate are much higher for women, uh, especially when it comes to these um, short-term sexual uh, contexts. And so, so basically we have what, uh, what what is very analogous, and I talk about this in my in my book, when men behave badly, very analogous to predator and prey coevolution, where in predator prey coevolution you have for each increment in speed and agility of a predator that favors increments in speed and agility of prey over evolutionary time, and so predators and prey are locked in these coevolutionary arms races that are perpetual. In the case of sexual conflict. It, the, the technical term is sexually antagonistic coevolution, where, you know, again, you have this uh, very analogous to predators and prey adaptations in one sex to influence or manipulate the other to be closer to its optimum, and then counter adaptations or defenses in the other sex to prevent being manipulated or to influence the other to be closer to its optimum. And these coevolutionary 
uh, arms races continue, uh, you know, per, in principle perpetually. And so at this moment in time and with humans in the year uh, 2021, we are end products of this long uh, billion plus year history of sexually antagonistic coevolution. Now, what we have is how that's what that's resulted in is uh, what you can call what I call sexual strategies or, or mating strategies, which differ to some degree in the sexes and an underlying sexual psychology that differs. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the most pernicious differences, I think, one of the ones that causes the most problem is men's desire for sexual variety. So uh, men tend to uh, uh, have a desire to have sex with a larger number of women. Uh, they tend to have se- uh, prefer to have sex after less time has elapsed. They are more likely than women to be perfectly comfortable to have sex with total strangers, uh, impersonal sex or casual sex, sex with no investment, no involvement, no commitment, uh, no psychological entanglements, um, and so forth. And so, uh, and so, and this is one of the largest and most profound sex differences that's ever been documented in the field of psychology, uh, where the it's, it's highly replicable. It occurs in all cultures. There have been massive cross-cultural studies on this and it produces havoc. It produces havoc on a lot of fronts. Uh, one of which is that men try to implement their desires in their mating strategies and uh, sometimes in ways to, through honest courtship, you know, where if they possess the qualities that a woman desires, then, you know, accurate display of those qualities is sometimes successful. Uh, but men also sometimes deceive women. I know this will come as a shock to your listeners that men sometimes lie, uh, and they, and, but they lie in very predictable ways. Uh, for example, exaggerating their um, their status, their resources, uh, or even feigning greater willingness to commit or greater emotional involvement than they truly have. Uh, and they do this as, in part as a means to um, basically bypass female choice. Uh, and then, of course, sometimes some men, and not all men, some men use coercion. So they use force or the threat of force to bypass female choice. Now, one of the, um, so, so, so this is, I don't realize I'm rambling a bit, but I'm kind of giving, giving an overview of some of these things, but I'll just mention one more thing about that. And then, um, and then I'll stop rambling and let you ask a question, uh, is that one of the things that comes up is, well, are, are all men sexual coercers or are all men rapists or potential rapists? And I, I argue that, the answer is no to that. That is, it seems to be a subset of men, uh, men marked by by a personality constellation called the dark triad, uh, high uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, combined with a short-term mating strategy that seem to be the subset of men who are particularly dangerous to women. In, in using coercion, threat of coercion, and also also deception. So these are guys who are the the, the subset pr- 
predicts who, which guys will be most likely to be both sexual harassers and sexual coercers. So, and, and, and of course, women have evolved defenses to guard against these, um, these uh, male tactics. And so in the book, what I talk about is, you know, well, who are the, what are these subsets of men? Uh, how do women defend against them? Which tactics are effective in defending? And how does this sexual conflict play out in different arenas, you know, in the workplace, you know, in private life, uh, even in, in mateships? Thank you. One of the, um, talking about starting, let's start with the kinds of men who are more likely to be uh, sex- sexually predatory. Um, one of the things that surprised me reading the book was um, that um, I think that um, many people are under the impression that rape evolved as an adaptation for uh, men who wouldn't otherwise be able to mate, that it's a strategy of losers, and therefore the men from whom women are most at risk um, are incels, um, and uh, a creepy guys who can't get a girlfriend, the sort of Elliot Rogers of the world. Um, and your book seems to suggest very much the opposite, that in fact it's a subset of extremely confident, uh, extremely self-confident, um, and often fairly successful influential men um, who are more likely to... Um, uh, to be rapists in addition to having consensual sex. Yes. Is that fair? Yes, that, that's a very fair characterization. So um, so the notion that uh, the, the first group, the first hypothesis that it's, uh, it's called the mate deprivation hypothesis and, uh, and has argued that uh, or proposed, hypothesized that it's the, basically the loser men, the incels, the men who can't, uh, obtain or attract women through normal means of um, courtship and honest display that do the raping and and of course there are some cases of that so uh, I don't I don't want to minimize that but the bulk of the evidence seems to actually refute that hypothesis so um, some you know vivid examples in in the news so you look at um, serial sexual predators so Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein are three very prominent examples that have been in the news recently. These are all highly successful men, very wealthy men, uh, and um, and also men who who can attract women through through consensual means, but they're able to get away with it uh, in part because they, unlike uh, men at the bottom end of the totem pole. They tend to have the resources to deploy high-priced uh, lawyers, uh, force uh, uh, sometimes engage in monetary settlements, uh, force non-disclosure agreements, uh, and basically silence the victims. Combined with the fact that victims of these high-status, high-resource men are more reluctant to press charges to begin with, uh, and part of the reason for that is that they're they realistically perceive they are less likely to be believed. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's, um, and this results in, a, it's one of the contributors to the under report rates of rape. And so 
Uh, and so there, there are a bunch of um, empirical studies that converge on the conclusion that it is not primarily these um, uh, incels or, or mate-deprived men who do the sexual coercion and, and raping, uh, but just the opposite. And so, I mean, it's actually one of the one of the very nice things. So, I mean, there's nothing. The the hypothesis that mate deprived men are more likely to rape is a perfectly reasonable hypothesis uh, as a scientific hypothesis, but it turns out not to be empirically supported. And just as as a side note, uh, similar findings have been found with uh, dappling ducks who are known to use both honest courtship and uh, and, and rape as an evolved strategy. And it is the, the successful males, that is the successful males in consensual mating context who are more likely to use sexual coercion, even in this uh, duck species. It's not the, the ducks who can't attract females through other means. So, um, so I think it's, this is a, a good example of where uh, in some ways we've been looking in the wrong direction and ignoring uh, basically men who can get away with it. And you see this sometimes played out in, I don't know, fraternity, fraternity parties, uh, and other situations where, you know, these, uh, big men on campus, uh, can get away with it and, and sometimes feel sexually entitled, you know, which gets us into the dark triad, which we can discuss as well, if you're interested. Sure. Um, the narcissism, Machiavellianism and, uh, what's the other? What's the other? Psycho- psychopathy is the is the third. Yeah, and for just for for listeners who may not be familiar with the dark triad, so the hallmark one hallmark of narcissism these tend to be uh, people who have a grandiose sense of self. They believe that they're more intelligent, more attractive, more charming than they really are. Are although sometimes they are very charming. Um, uh, and they feel a sense of entitlement, uh, uh, that is, and that includes sexual entitlement. And, and, and if they're guys, they tend to feel that they're God's gift to women and that all women should be attracted to them. And so they tend to over infer sexual interest in women when it's not there. So that's narcissism. Machiavellianism is, these are people who pursue an exploitative social strategy. So these are the, the liars, the cheaters, the deceivers uh, who, um, who basically view other people as pawns to be manipulated and for their own selfish goals. Uh, and then psychopathy is uh, uh, it, one of the hallmarks is a lack of empathy. So these are people who are indifferent to the suffering of other people, uh, or even, even dogs, for example, like if a dog got hit by a car, mm-hmm. a person high in psychopathy might, might laugh. They would have no compassion for the suffering of, of this, of this dog or, or other people. And so, and so, and so fortunately the, these, this dark triad or extremes on the dark triad is, um, these aren't the majority of people. Most people, most normal humans have empathy and have more, you know, more or less realistic perceptions of their own desirability. Uh, and, um, and although we, we all, you know, use strategies to influence other people to be closer to what we want 
uh, in life, uh, those high in Machiavellianism are kind of on the extreme of that, prioritizing their selfish goals at the expense of others. So uh, when you take this dark triad and then you combine it with one other ingredient, which is a dispositional pursuit of a short-term mating strategy, that is, these are people who are uh, into casual sex, casual hookups, you know, uh, Tinder dates with no emotional involvement. You combine the dark triad with a short-term mating strategy. These are the guys who are both uh, pred predict sexual harassment in the workplace. And these are the guys who use force or threat of force uh, in the context of uh, sexual coercion. So, so, so again, it's a subset of men, but we now have identified, uh, now these aren't perfect predictors, of course, not, nothing in human behavior predicts anything perfectly, but these are statistical predictors of which men are most likely to engage in this bad behavior. I'm returning a little bit to some of the things that surprised me as I went through your book. And one of them is, so you were talking earlier about women's evolved strategies for protecting themselves against rape. And I'm starting with rape here. I want to go on to kind of intimate partner violence. Okay. Um, but um, one thing you said which surprised me, um, and again, I think that my um, my previous assumption prior to reading the book was that um, women tend to fear being raped by strangers more than they do by acquaintances or dates. And whereas, in fact, it's much, you're much more likely to be raped by a, an acquaintance or on a date. Um, and I always assumed that this was the result of a kind of mismatch between our current environment and the ancestral environment, the ancestral environment in which we lived in small groups. And when we encountered other rival groups, it was the stranger men from those groups who were the biggest threat, who were the most likely to carry off the women and rape the women. And we know, you know, we lived like that for most gen for most of our existence as a species. Um, but your view of of uh, women's fear of of strangers is is slightly different. Um, you actually think that it it the reason women are less often raped by strangers is because women are more fearful. Um, and therefore that fear has, has had the effect of cutting out, cutting down the amount of stranger rape. Is that a fair, fair summary? Yes. Uh, I think that there's some plausibility to both hypotheses. That is, I think that there is um, a mismatch there are, or, or mismatches uh, of a variety of sorts. One is the sort that you mentioned where, um, you know, w we evolved in the context of small group warfare where uh, uh, strange groups uh, I attacked and invaded and, and often did sexually assault women. And so, uh, and so that was, was prevalent. We don't, at least in most modern cultures, we don't engage in this small group warfare, at least not to the same extent. Um, but but yes, I think if you um, that women have do have this very powerful rape fear of strange males, and they overestimate the how likely it is that a woman will be raped by a strange male. 
But I, I think it is very plausible that without this fear of strange men, uh, that rapes by strangers would be higher than they are currently. And so I think that there's some way in which women's evolved defenses against strange males uh, have been have been effective. I think that that's a very plausible uh, account, but not incompatible with also some degree of mismatch between modern and, and ancestral environments. So, so yeah, but fear, fear of strange males, fear of men who talk uh, a lot about sex, uh, fear of circumstances in which women lack bodyguards. Um, so, you know, you know, in my studies of, so just to give one example, uh, we did with, uh, Professor Josh Duntley and I did a, s- a series of studies in what we call uh, anti-homicidal ideation, in which we ask people whether they ever felt like someone wanted to kill them. And one of the shocking and s- surprising findings from that study was that a number of women said, yes, I was walking down the street alone and it was uh, the lighting was dim and there was this guy across the street who was staring at me coldly and i thought he was going to drag me into the woods and rape me and then kill me and we had an astonishing number of women describe this where they felt like their life was in danger and and so you know one of the interesting puzzles is is um is if you compare those fears with the actual conditional probabilities of if a woman gets raped, what is likely that she will get killed by her rapist? The the odds are extremely low. One study put it at a, estimated it to be one in ten thousand. And so, so why are women fearing these strange males? Well, it could be hypothesis one is is indeed strange males were the most dangerous to women ancestrally. Uh, but two these these strange fear of strange males uh this adaptation is working and lowering the rape incidents by strange males uh b- far below what it would be without these fears i find um and uh i i felt you were very sympathetic to this within the book um i find that there is an empathy gap in how men and women perceive um danger on the street in general. So there's certainly evidence to suggest that men are more likely to be uh, victims of violence on the street. Um, And therefore, I often hear that it's kind of ridiculous that women are are so fearful of uh, being out alone at night in a potentially dangerous place, etc. And I I agree with the arguments that... that, uh, it's, it's good to be less irrationally fearful. Um, but I also think a lot of that kind of excess fear comes from the fact that women fear rape to an extent that um, men just don't understand. And yes. that has an evolutionary basis. Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's precisely the argument that I, uh, that I make in the book that, that although, I mean, you're absolutely correct that when it comes to uh, violent crimes overall, so things like mugging or even killing or getting into a fight and beating someone up, men are far more likely to be victims uh, than women, with 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 one important exception, and that and that is rape. Women are far more likely to be victims of sexual violence. 
Um, and uh, if you uh, con in studies that control for sexual violence or fear of sexual violence, it turns out that's what's driving women's fear uh, of vi of violence in in general because um, uh, because what they what they fear is that uh, that the violence uh, will result in in a rape and there's actually evidence for this. So even things like uh, there's a, a couple massive studies of home break-ins. So guys who break in to steal something and they think no one's home and they discover that there's a woman there at home uh, alone, even though their primary goal was to steal, some of these men will opportunistically rape a female who, who happens to be there. And so, and so I think that, um, that this fear is, uh, is a it's a realistic fear and it it it's what we call an error management bias uh but it's an adaptive bias so it's it's a bias in the sense that statistically these things don't happen as much as women fear that they will happen but it's an adaptive bias because the costs of being wrong and thinking there's no danger when there really is danger are so severe and have been throughout human evolutionary history. And the importance of sexual choice is uh, is so much greater for women in evolutionary terms. Yes. So hence it's kind of deep-seated. Um, hence women don't fear being beaten up. They fear being raped. Yes. Um, they fear having that choice removed. That's, um, that's right. And that and that's why I, I argue that it, you know, that, that sexual violence of a variety of sorts, and maybe we'll get into some of these other sorts, but things like um, uh, intimate partner violence is a form of sexual violence. Stalking is a form of sexual violence. Sexual harassment is a form of sexual violence. Uh, rape is obviously sexual violence that all of these um, are things that bypass female choice and that female choice is, I think, the most fundamental you know, first line of uh, female sexual strategies. Mm. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to talk about intimate partner violence. What, what predicts um, intimate partner violence? What kinds of men become, uh, and in what situations are men most likely to become violent towards their partners? Well, there, there are a couple that I single out in, in the book. Uh, one is um, that when people get into a relationship, uh, you know, people have, have desires, they have mate preferences, and the people that they get into relationships with tend to be those who at least they perceive at the outset to at least partially or fully fulfill those desires. So, and we know that... Um, that women, for example, have an evolved preference for men with resources and a willingness to devote those resources and invest those resources in her and her children. Uh, and so, uh, and so, uh, when you when you get into a relationship, if you have benefits to provide uh, that fulfill a woman's desires, then you don't have to resort to cost infliction tactics that uh, you know a, as a means of holding onto or retaining that mate. And so one of the things that we know is a predictor of divorce is a man's failure to provide for the woman and her children. 
And so, and this is a one very unfortunate thing that occurred, uh, and it still is to some degree during the pandemic, is that a lot of people lost their jobs. And when you when you don't have the benefits to provide, some men resort to cost infliction tactics, which include violence, beating the woman up or threatening to beat her up, uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence. It goes by different terms. And uh, so 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 that's one. A, A second important one is what I call mate value discrepancies. So using the crude you know, numerical system, if let's say the woman is an eight and the guy is a six or becomes a six through one, through loss of job or, or, or one means uh, or another, that those mate value discrepancies also predict intimate partner violence where the lower, the lower mate value person, the less desirable person in the relationship uh, is more likely to use violence. Now, part of that also is because we know that when there's a mate value discrepancy, the higher mate value person, in this case, the woman, is more likely to uh, commit an infidelity and is more likely to leave the relationship for a uh, trade up in the mating market or, or put herself back in the mating pool to find a man who she thinks is more desirable than her current mate. And so often intimate partner violence is, is a last ditch uh tactic that men use, some men use to try to hold on to a mate who is tempted to leave. And uh, one of the things that I delve into some detail in the book is precisely how violence in these contexts basically hijacks women's psychology in very uh, destructive ways. So for example, of getting beaten up tends to lower people's self-esteem so they don't feel good about themselves. Well, we know that self-esteem to some degree, a partial degree, is a reflection of your self-perceptions of how desirable you are as a mate, your self-perceived mate value. And so if you lower the woman's self-esteem, then she might think, well, you know, I thought I was an eight and I'm with this guy as a six, but maybe I'm really a six and maybe I'm lucky to be with this guy. And it's unlikely that I'll be able to trade up in the mating market if I go back out there. And so, and of course, this is, you know, this is a horrific psychological manipulation. But um, what we found in, in my studies uh, is that this physical violence is often accompanied by verbal or emotional abuse. So, so insulting the woman and in particular insulting her appearance, making her feel bad about her own physical appearance and attractiveness. And we know that physical attractiveness is something that men care about uh, in, in mating contexts and that women engage in efforts to maintain or improve their physical appearance through a variety of means co- from cosmetics to cosmetic surgery. Um, and so lowering a woman's self-perceptions of how attractive or desirable she, she is, is, is uh, unfortunately sometimes works. So, so anyway, this is one of the ways in which men uh, who use violence hijack women's psychology. And, and this is maybe a controversial aspect of my book, but I argue that 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 it reflects an adaptation, you know, that men who don't have 
men who are lower in mate value or who lack the ability to provide benefits that women desire sometimes resort to these cost-inflicting tactics. When I was reading that section, I was thinking about um, the relationship between Ike and Tina Turner. Yes. Uh, where, uh, uh, you know, allegedly, if I'm trusting the, the biography, uh, Tina's biography and the other kinds of accounts that I've, I've corroborative accounts that I've heard, um, when their relationship began and he was the well-known musician and she was a, um, uh, she was just another, another girl, um, a teen who had had a, uh, who'd already had a child out of wedlock, um, and who nobody knew about. And he was the famous one. They had a very loving and harmonious relationship. And then when she, her star quality became apparent, um, he began to, he began to feel jealous. And that's when the violence began. Yes. Yeah, that's a perfect example uh, uh, of that, where her desirability, her mate value uh, eclipsed his over time. And he shifted from uh, shifted to a cost inflicting strategy. And, and unfortunately, it, it it produced a lot of psychological scars from what I can tell from reading about it. Also, also, there is a documentary about about her life. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately it worked in keeping her in the relationship a lot longer than she would have stayed in the relationship otherwise. So, you know, finally it got to the point where, uh, the abuse was so great that she, you know, pulled herself together and left the relationship. And then of course went on to become extremely successful in, in her career and, and, and found, found love, found, found a mate who loved her and valued her and, um, and was not abusive. So, but, but yeah, I think the Ike and Tina Turner case is, is a perfect illustration of that, uh, mate value discrepancy that I was describing. One of the things that, one of the other things that surprised me is, um, so one, one obvious question is given how, um, dangerous it is for a woman to be unfaithful within a relationship. I talk When I say dangerous, I'm talking in kind of, I'm generalizing in sort of evo psych terms, mm-hmm. um, because the one of the major predictors for intimate partner violence is male jealousy. Um, and um, the usual, the kind of traditional interpretation of why women are unfaithful um, is that uh, women are seeking the maximally best genes for their offspring. Um, so they want to conceive with somebody outside the relationship who has the best possible genes, but remain with their mate who is, who is providing the money, the security, the protection, etc. Um, and, um, you point out that, that, um, many women report falling in love with their lovers. Um, many women who have affairs report falling in love with their lovers. And this seems to, uh, seems to contradict this idea, this hypothesis that female fidel- infidelity is about searching for good genes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about why women uh, stray in relationships? Yes. Uh, 
yeah, so so that's you're absolutely right about that. So um, this is one area where I disagree with many of my evolutionary psychology colleagues, who uh, who I, I totally respect and the high, the the good genes hypothesis, or it's sometimes called the dual mating strategy hypothesis, getting resources from one man and getting genes from another, uh, is a perfectly plausible hypothesis. But what I argue, if, if you ask the question, why do women have affairs? Uh, I don't think it can account for the majority of cases. Now, one of the reasons is precisely the reason that you mentioned that is, is if a woman is having an affair just to get good genes, the last thing in the world you would want her to do uh, from a from a functional perspective is to fall in love with her affair partner and become emotionally involved with him. Uh, that's a disastrous design feature. What, what you want instead, according to the good genes hypothesis, you, you want her to just get the genes and not jeopardize her regular relationship. And falling in love with an affair partner is going to jeopardize her relationship. And so I argue that uh, for what I call the mate switching hypothesis, which I think is a, a accounts for a much larger share, I think probably the majority of uh, why motivations for why women have affairs. So a couple other pieces of evidence to support this is uh, are um, one is that women tend to have affairs when they are emotionally and sexually dissatisfied with the relationship. And then that, that may sound blindingly obvious or or trivially true, but the interesting thing is it's not true of men. So if you compare men who have affairs with men who do not have affairs, there's no difference in how happy they are with the relationship or the, or the marriage. But it's a big predictor for, for women. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then, and then second, as you mentioned, women tend to become emotionally involved with their affair partners. And, uh, and so in the book, I assemble a variety of other pieces of evidence that point to the conclusion that women are looking to... Uh, exit a bad relationship or a cost-inflicting relationship to trade up in the mating market uh, or to transition into the mating pool uh, to see whether, you know, she can find a better mate for her, for her out there. And so some women who have affairs, they end up in long-term mateships with their affair partner, but some use it as a means of exiting the relationship uh, in order to transition back out of the mating pool, uh, and so and so th these are these different strands are all part of the umbrella of what I call the mate switching hypothesis. So uh, now, of course, it's 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 theoretically possible that both hypotheses the the good genes or dual mating strategy and the mate switching hypothesis they could both be correct for different women under different circumstances. But I think if you ask the question, why do most women have affairs? I think the mate switching hypothesis is the most compelling explanation. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the kind of the mate the mate switching hypothesis, um, how do you think that the um, the advent of online dating and dating apps and the kind of presentation of an instant smorgasbord of potential mates at your fingertips? has, uh, might have changed the, the calculus, uh, for men and for women. Yes. I, and this is, uh, speculative, but this is sometimes, uh, I, I think it, it's hijacked our, our evolved mating psychology 
in the following way, in that ancestrally in small group living, which you pointed out earlier, we would have encountered maybe a few dozen potential mates in our entire lifespan. So, but in here in the modern world with online dating, we have uh, the potential to be exposed to thousands or even millions of possible mates, of potential mates. And so I think it floods our mating, uh, our, our mating psychology with this belief that there are, there's always someone better out there. There's always someone who's a little bit higher in mate value, someone who might be a little bit better at fulfilling all the qualities that you desire, which are many. You know, people have very complicated mate preferences. They, you know, they want partners who are uh, kind, understanding, intelligent, um, healthy, good sense of humor, adaptable, um, similar to them in their political orientations and religious beliefs and values. And so, you know, there are many, many qualities people want. And, um, and so there's the, the online dating gives the, the impression that there's always someone better out there for you. Now, uh, now, in fact, there might be, I mean, you could say that one good aspect of internet dating is that it does give you the possibility of mating with a much larger number of potential mates or, or evaluating a, a much larger potential pool of mates than you ever would have uh, or what, or ever could meet in, in person. Uh, but the downside is, is sometimes called, um, in addition to, you know, perceiving that there might be someone better is what's sometimes called decision paralysis, where, Mm -hmm. where if you are uh, single and other studies have shown this, like if you give people sample of, let's say six different types of jam and you say, and people will sample the six different types and they'll, they'll say, Oh, I like this one the best and they'll pick it and buy it. But if you give them 24 jams to sample, then they'll, they'll sample and then they can't decide. And so they'll end up buying nothing. And I think some a similar decision paralysis sometimes hit uh, uh, affects humans when it comes to this, um, you know, panoply of potential mates that are out there on the dating scene. And you know, it's possible. Like so, as as you might know, and as your listeners might know, there's been a decline in marriage rates, a decline in romantic relationship uh, rates, and a decline in reproductive rates in uh, in modern Western environments, uh, m- a lot of Western Europe uh, and um, North America uh, and uh, Scandinavian countries and so forth. And so um, I think, you know, one, we don't know all the different causes of these declines, but one of them might be the presence of online dating, plus perhaps another evolutionarily model, mo- modern phenomenon, which is online pornography. Um, which is which is consumed, um, you know, by large numbers of men, especially, but some percentage of women as well. Yeah, I, I've heard very frequently that uh, um, surveys suggest that Gen Z um, are having a lot less sex um, than previous generations. This is isn't something you talk about in the book, but do you agree with that analysis and? Um, 
If so, what do you put that down to? Yeah, well, I, I agree with the, the the findings, the data. They seem to be solid and, and well-documented. There have been declines in, in sex rates and in some countries much more than others. So Japan and South Korea seem to be especially um, experiencing these these. Uh, these things and and I don't know what it what it's down to. I mean it, you know, with these trends, often it's it's not down to one thing. It's often a combination of factors. So, um, you know, in Japan, for example, there's enormous pressure to work long hours, long tedious hours, and they often have very uh, high commute times to and from work, and um, you know, and so you you exhaust people from work and and they don't feel like sex very much or 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 mating or even engaging in relationships and uh so i think that there's that part of it is that part of it is these other substitutes so i mean pornography is is you could say like an easy you know the lazy man's uh, way of mating so they can get a certain amount of sexual pleasure not leaving their their home or their or their laptop uh and and so these substitutes might lower motivations for engaging in an actual relationship with someone and then and we know that most sex uh happens in the context of relationships that is people who have mating relationships have much more sex than people who are who are single and just doing the casual dating. Uh, and so the decline in relationships is going to result in a decline in the frequency of sex for the population as a whole. But, but I, I mean, I don't, these are just a few thoughts. I don't, I don't have a magic um, explanation for this. What I find a very startling uh, decline in, in, in sexual activity where people, a lot of people don't just don't seem interested you know, there's also the possibility that there are evolutionarily novel uh, things in in the water. For example, uh, certain chemicals get leached by plastics, you know, and are in the drinking water. And there's some evidence that these uh, that these affect our, our hormones and, and in the case of males, even sperm production. Uh, so, you know, you know, you, you have modern social things like Internet dating and online pornography uh, you have uh, work pressures. You have possibility of environmentally novel um, chemicals that can influence our hormonal systems. Uh, pr- hopefully, we'll be able to figure all this out over the next five or ten years scientifically. What do you make of the um, the idea, which I I hear a lot of, I've heard a lot of people um, saying in one form or another recently. Well, uh, since the Me Too movement that the um, our greater um, consciousness of the harm caused by sexual harassment and our um, more stringent um, standards of, of behavior in the workplace um, and in generally in public life have just led to fewer um, less sex, fewer people getting together. Because um, men have ordinary men have become afraid to approach women in case they are accused of or seen as harassers, um, 
while women haven't compensated for that by making the first moves towards men. Do you think there's any truth in that idea? Uh, yeah, I think that it, it's a poss possible that it's exacerbated the trend, but the trend um, uh, long preceded the Me Too movement. Uh, mm. and, so, and so in the current moment, it might be another causal factor that is exacerbating that, you know, putting a kind of uh, sexual freeze or, or romantic freeze where people are afraid to act for fear of being perceived as sexual harassers. Uh, and, um, and we know, I mean, this is one of the startling things that you would think that, um, you know, the, the making the first move issue that, you know, in the modern environment, it would, there would be more sexual equality or more equality between the sexes in that. But there is still um, the uh, expectation by women uh, that, um, that men, men are supposed to make the first move. Then, uh, of course, there are some dating sites that try to counter this. So the dating site Bumble, uh, mm -hmm. which is actually it's located, the headquarters here in, here in Austin. I'm not involved it, with that, so I don't have any um, stake in that. But they require uh, women to make the first move. And so if a guy is on the site, he has to wait until a woman makes the first move for that. And it's been extremely successful. Uh, but in, in everyday life, women um, seem to be more reluctant to make that first move. Of course, some do. Uh, and then the other thing is there's sort of the um, uh, overt first move, and then there's the signaling first move. And I think that often women signal interest to men and it kind of gives men the green light to approach. And so it seems like overtly he's making the first move when in fact, if you look more carefully, she's been signaling to him that it's okay for him to make the first move. Yeah. Um, I, um, so moving, shifting topic just slightly, um, as, uh, and kind of zo zooming out a little bit here, um, Evo Psych has received a lot of flack, particularly in this area in um, sexual behavior and, and particularly sexual violence because of people's, I believe, misconception that seeking explanations for something is the same as excusing that thing. Um, and of course, you, uh, you are very clear throughout the book that um, that there's no is I mean there's no kind of naturalistic fallacy going on here. There's no idea that because the, some of these behaviors are evolved, therefore they are somehow excusable. Evolution is completely amoral. Um, but in fact, you also say the opposite that sex, the denialism, denying the evolutionary roots of sexual differences, harms women. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I think you you accurately characterized both the misconception and uh, and and my arguments on it. So so, so one and I, and I think there are two issues here that are maybe somewhat related. So the first issue is is the naturalistic fallacy that somehow uh, if men have these evolved proclivities, uh, then somehow that lets them off the hook. And so, uh, uh, you know, and I argue that, no, absolutely not. Uh, and, and I'll give one anecdote. Someone who read my 
previous book, The Evolution of Desire Strategies of Human Mating, and about the desire for sexual variety, said it actually helped him to remain more faithful to his wife because he realized he would sometimes get attracted to women who were not his wife. And he initially interpreted that as, oh, maybe it means I don't, I'm not in love with her anymore. But once he read my book, he realized, actually, no, these are two different adaptations. So one is, yeah, desire for sexual variety. Men are attracted to women other than their regular partner, but there's also love and pair bonding and attachment. And so he, he once he kind of had a better understanding of his underlying sexual psychology and its origins, it caused him to be more faithful. So, so I think, I think in, in, in reducing sexual conflict and violence toward women, knowledge is absolutely essential. So, so, um, you know, will some defense lawyer or solicitor use, uh, use this to, for bad purposes to get off a client? Well, possibly, I mean, but, but, um, but lawyers have used bad, you know, these things, all kinds of excuses for their clients. Oh, he couldn't help it because he grew up in poverty or he couldn't help it because he was abused as a child or he couldn't help it because X, Y, or Z. So people have invoked all kinds of, um, ways to excuse bad behavior. But, uh, but, but as you point out, I go to great pains in the book to point out that no, this is, should not be done. Uh, identifying causes is not the same as excusing them. It'd be the one example I use is if you're a cancer researcher, no one would think, oh, you think cancer is a good thing and you want to spread it more or you spread it widely. No, cancer researchers are, you know, they're, they're devoted to trying to reduce or eliminate cancer. And the same is true, I think, with trying to understand the causes of sexual violence. That is what we want to do is re reduce it. And I think there's a heavy agreement about that. The second issue that you raise, though, is I think um, a very important issue, and it's what I call sex difference denialism. And I think that the people who deny sex difference, it, it's not that they're ill-intentioned. I think that there's this worry that somehow if we acknowledge that there are evolved sex differences, that somehow they will be used against women to discriminate against them and so forth, which of course should not be done. But in this case, I think that it, that denying sex differences that we know exist now, I mean, the evidence is so compelling that sex differences in our sexual psychology, our mating psychology Diff exist and are profound, that denying them harms precisely the half of the population uh, that is most likely to become a victim of sexual violence. And so, and so I think that we have to not deny them. We have to, you know, look at these unpleasant aspects of our human nature. Um, you know, with, you know, I, I think it's a mistake to view human nature as all good or all bad, you know, this kind of Hobbesian versus Rousseauian uh, extremes of it. We, we have a collection of adaptations. We have adaptations for honest courtship, uh, for kindness, for altruism, for cooperation. Uh, but we also have adaptations for doing bad stuff. And the bad stuff is done mainly by men. Uh, you know, in, in the sexual domain. Uh, so we have to understand these causes in order to come up with cures. And what I try to do in my book is, uh, by understanding them, is, is, is talk about the sex differences, the scientific evidence for them, uh, which men and which subsets of men are most likely to commit the sexual violence, 
and also the circumstances, the social and personal and relationship circumstances in which sexual violence is most likely to occur. And so it's a kind of combination uh, of of different lenses, if you will, a kind of individual difference lens, an evolutionary lens, and uh, circumstantial lens, which is which is also ev- an evolutionary lens that is critical for um, uh, ultimately reducing sexual violence toward women. Um, David, is there anything that you have wanted to say or have hoped that I would ask you that you haven't had a chance to say? Um. Well, uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, You know, I hope that readers will look at the book. I mean, there are some topics that we didn't cover uh, uh, much like stalking in the aftermath of breakups and revenge porn. But but uh, but we've covered all the main topics and readers that are interested in uh, those other topics like stalking and revenge porn and so forth, the deception on the mating market. Uh, I hope they will find the book useful. Mm. Yes, there's plenty we didn't cover um, because I don't want people to feel the podcast is a substitute for reading the book. Um, (laughs) I want the podcast to send people to your book, which um, which I find extremely illuminating. Well, well, thank you so much for that. I, I'm, Delighted to hear that, and I hope it. I hope it is. I, I, I think it's. I think it's important for women and men to to read the book to um, to understand these phenomena and the circumstances in which they occur. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It's been it's been a delight to chat with you. It's been my pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.